What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today on the podcast, we're joined by political scientist Robert Kaplan in conversation with political philosopher John Gray. Together, they explore why the great dilemmas of geopolitics are not battles of good against evil, where the choices are clear, but rather contests of good against good, where the choices are often painful, incompatible, and fraught with consequence. Stay tuned to understand how the insights of the Greek tragedies, as well as Shakespeare and modern philosophers and classic authors, can help us understand the central subjects of international politics. Order, disorder, rebellion, ambition, and the mistakes of power and how viewing events through a tragic lens could guide the West's strategy for dealing with Russia and China today. It's a great pleasure to be talking with Robert Kaplan, whose books have had a great influence on my thinking over more than 20 years since I started reading him, and who I think is preeminent among uh, contemporary geopolitical thinkers in his insights into the ways in which our geopolitical situation now in the 21st century in 2023 with Ukraine war moving towards some sort of crux perhaps this year differs, how that situation differs from earlier periods in geopolitics, including the Cold War. And I wondered whether we might start, Robert, by exploring some of the differences between where we are now and the situation we are now in the Cold War, because I often read, perhaps with a little bit of irritation, people in the press and even scholars talking about a new Cold War. We're in a new Cold War with China or with Russia or with them both. And yet, I think you've pointed out the many ways in which our situation differs really profoundly from that of the world in the Cold War. Yes, John. It's a great pleasure to be here with you on Intelligence Squared. The Cold War was cold because it never got hot in Central Eastern Europe during the second half of the 20th century. So it was called a Cold War. And presumably, neither the United States nor China want a hot 
kinetic war. So people have called it a cold war. But the differences are profound. Remember that this old Soviet Union was a, only had some niche capacities. It had a great nuclear bombs. It had a space program, which was very good. It had some other things, but otherwise it had no economy of any sorts. Whereas China is a full spectrum power, not only with bombs, a space program, it produces a, a plethora of consumer and military digital cyber products. It is strong in every way conceivable and is thus a much greater challenge to the United States and the West than the old Soviet Union was. And also, the Chinese economy, because they have the world's second largest economy, is the interconnections, the interbreeding between the U.S. and the Chinese economies are vast. So the disentangling them, it becomes almost impossible to predict what the outcome will be. So this is a much, much more complicated situation. And also, the Cold War was binary. It was two powers. Uh, this, this era that we're in has a number of second-tier powers which can heavily influence the two greater powers. We have Russia, we have Iran, we have India, we have Brazil, we have, to some extent, South Africa. It's a much more unstable world system, precisely mm. because it's a much more complex world system than existed during the old Cold War. All I think all of that is very worth reflecting on. Two points I would take out for our viewers and listeners are, to go back to the Cold War, the entire Soviet economy could have disappeared as it did indeed almost disappear. It collapsed. And the impact on the West was not considerable. The impact on the West. If, the, if China's economy collapsed, if there was a really a deep economic collapse in China, the impact on the rest of the world, on the West, would be incalculable, would be unfathomable. So that's one very, and that was seen to some extent during the COVID shutdown. That had a big impact on the West, whereas not much that the Soviets did internally in their economy had anything like that impact on the West. But the other thing I think is important is that a non-binary world order, a world order not justified it as it was in the Cold War with some non-aligned powers, which, however, were not major power players then. There was a large area of the non-aligned countries, but India hadn't emerged yet in the way that it did, uh, that it has done now, for example. A non-binary world has different power dynamics and therefore different conflicts and therefore different and greater possibilities of, of, non, of kinetic war even of, or of conflict of various kinds. The conflicts are not just more multiple, they're more multi-sided. Yes, there's a sense of connectedness hmm. that, in the world that exists today that didn't exist during the old Cold War. It's We don't have a world government and we don't even have world governance hmm. to a great extent, but we do have a world system. 
united mm. by technology to a much greater extent than ever before. And although the, the, the unifying the world began decades and centuries ago, attrition mm. of the same adds up to big change. So we're in a very connected, claustrophobic world mm. system where one part of the world, the crisis mm. in Ukraine, for instance, can affect power mm. dynamics or the perception of power dynamics mm. in Asia, for instance, mm. as it has, so that every any part of the world can tweak all the other parts of the world, and, and there would be movement. So it's that much more unstable because you will always have some level of instability mm. somewhere that mm. will affect everywhere else to a degree as never before. Uh, that, that paradox wasn't grasped, I think, until recently in its full implications. Because what it means is the more integrated the world is, the more potentially unstable it is. Yes, uh, Whereas exactly. it, it was imagined that the more integrated, if everyone was dependent on everyone else, then conflict would diminish and the whole system would stabilize. The opposite happened. Yes, exactly. Interconnectivity is great, presents unlimited opportunities for financial markets and other mm. things, and for medicine, the solving problems of disease, scientists cooperating with each other across oceans from around the world. But in geopolitics, interconnectivity is potentially very destabilizing mm. because now every place matters. You mm. just cannot say that Africa doesn't matter or mm. Southeast Asia doesn't matter. A crisis anywhere can affect crises in other places mm. as never before because of the way that the whole system is integrated. And let me just add right now that if there was ever a military conflict of reasonable dimension in the Far East between the United States and China, it mm. would have a catastrophic effect on world financial markets mm. to a degree that we have not seen even in the Ukraine war or certainly in the various Middle East wars of the past 25 years. Mm. Mm. It would be tantamount what, to something like or greater even than the 1929 crash, yes. which, which had an effect on the rise of Hitler, for example, in Germany. Yes. And it that, would be a, a gigantic convulsion. Yes. And that's why ultimately, in terms of U.S. policy, mm. it, the Asia Pacific is always the most important mm. because there's a realization that any conflict there would be high end with missiles, hypersonic weapons, cyber, etc., that would destabilize world financial markets. Mm. So that even in the midst, in the most dramatic intense moments of the Ukraine war, there is a realization in Washington, especially in the Pentagon, that ultimately getting the Pacific right is the most important thing. And getting the Pacific right means somehow standing up for democracy in Taiwan, but not getting into a kinetic conflict with China by any means. Is that possible, though? I don't know. This is going to play out maybe not just over a few years, but over a decade or two. Keep in mind that what seems to be starting to happen is that both sides are edging into a post-Cuban missile crisis situation. Remember the Cuban missile crisis of the fall of 1962? 
both superpowers stared into the abyss and mm. they were terrified at what they saw. And mm. as a result, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, you got a nuclear test ban treaty, mm. you got a hotline, you got strategic mm. arms limitation talks, you got detente ultimately, all because both superpowers were terrified of an actual mm. war and they mm. didn't solve their problems, just mm. like we're not solving our problems with China. But what they did do is they built borders around them. Mm. They made it less likely that there would be an accidental hot war. Yeah. And I think that is where the Biden administration and where the Chinese regime yeah. are now hoping to head towards. I share your view that there are signs that's happening. And that, I think, shows, though, why representing the present world in binary terms, as some publicists and writers do, as democracy versus autocracy, is not only wrong, it's dangerous because yes. that, that because that would that you would then push together china and russia and iran and other countries into a block and on the other hand there would be a block of what of the united states and europe and maybe japan and it's not clear india would be in that block uh, so you'd have a couple of blocks with some big powers south africa brazil wavering or trying to be neutral to be neutral but the pressure to make the world conform to a binary model seems to me to be itself dangerous. Yes. Yeah. I, we have to keep in mind not only the places you mentioned, but mm. Southeast Asia, for the yes. most part, is not democratic, yet yeah. it is essentially pro-Western, pro-American, mm. anti-Chinese. There's mm. change now afoot in Thailand, of course, but generally Southeast Asia has pockets of it that are not democratic. And so the world does not neatly divide. I was a foreign correspondent for decades, and what I saw was not a black and white situation mm. of great mm. democracies and terrible dictatorships. Mm. I saw a lot of gray shades, a lot of dictatorships where people had civil rights, where people had predictable, decent lives. And I also saw some shambolic, totally unstable democracy. And I think that one mistake that the Biden administration has made in Ukraine, though generally I think their policy has mm. been pretty good, we could mm. talk about that maybe, but one mistake they've made is to make it a contest of democracy versus mm. authoritarianism. Mm. Mm. Because it should be something even bigger. It should just be upholding some sort of rules-based order where a big country cannot just physically attack another you know, reasonably sized country with massive weapons and human rights violations, and everyone would just get accepted. Remember when James Baker came up with a 34-nation coalition to oppose Iraq's occupation of Kuwait, most of those countries were not democracies. And mm. Baker didn't care. Because Baker was more interested in reconciliations mm. rather than giving ultimatums. Well, I can see that a kind of a monotonic insistence on this as democracy versus autocracy is going to alienate a lot of powers in the first place. And it looks like a way of the US or the West or Europe re trying to reclaim a sort of global primacy that it's already lost already. One of the things that strikes me is 
a multipolar world isn't a dark Putinist plot. We're already in one. It's just a fact. Yeah. It's what we it's what we do with it. It's what the, how the West adapts to it, which is which is key. And so insisting on this democratic democracy versus authoritarian, it, it blinds one to the real power relations. I think, by the way, I thought that the reemergence of Assad in the Middle East recently as a sort of credible, almost respectable figure was a warning in some sense, which is that the notion that one can attempt to intervene, as the West did, in a very complicated internal struggle of the kind that went on in Syria, fail and leave, it doesn't it, it does have long-term consequences. The long-term consequences were that Russia entered the vacuum and kept its client in power, and he's still there. Can you yeah. envisage a situation in which, let's think of a kind of a dark scenario. Could there be a situation five years from now in which Putin was in that, in a similar position? It's not impossible, yeah. is it? Yeah, I think that gets us into two subjects, the difference between the Middle East and Europe. Now, Europe, <clears throat> because Europe has all the building blocks of democracy, it's got middle classes, it's got a long tradition of parliamentarianism. Mm -hmm. The few countries in Europe that are not democracies, like Belarus mm -hmm. and Russia, are, are devastating failures. So I think over the next few months, we're about to see a fork in the road in Europe, whereby if the Ukrainians really do well on the battlefield over the next few weeks and months, we're going to see a, a lot of triumphalism about the success mm. of democracy. And that will be true for Europe, but it does not carry over into the Middle East or mm. other parts of the mm. world. Mm. We saw at the end of the Cold War mm. when, because Poland became free, people mm. started to say, therefore, Liberia and Sierra Leone will be yeah. free. Yeah. And there was no connection. So there were a lot of dashed hopes in the 1990s mm. because people thought we had reached the end of history in 1989. Mm. I think something similar might evolve now because I do think the Ukrainians are going to do very well on the battlefield in the next few months. Mm. I, a different analogy I would make is I remember having conversations with people in the run-up to and then the immediate aftermath of the Iraq war in which some of them, mostly from the United States, said, look, we were able to have democratic regimes in former Nazi Germany and former militarist Japan. So we can in Iraq. And what I said at that time was, look, however terrible, and indeed it was uniquely terrible, Nazi Germany was, there was still a civil society underneath there. They'd been in power for 13 years, not 30 years. They'd done colossal and unique and irreparable harms, but there, was st there were still institutions that could be remerged. And that was also true, actually, of Japan, the first non-Western country to industrialize. The, there were a couple of generations there. So the idea that what might work in if the Ukrainians do as well, as you suggest they will in the next few months, this kind of triumphalism, even if the triumphalism reverberates successfully in Europe, you're quite right. It will not reverberate successfully in the Middle East or in Africa or in many other parts of the world. Yes, because just look at Sudan now. Mm -hmm. 
we had at least the first round disappointment mm. in elections in Turkey, so that it's a matter of Germany, Japan, at the end of World War II were completely defeated, yes. devastated, and, and occupied, and uh, occupied, and yes. nevertheless had the building blocks yes. of middle class existence, yes. Yes. and they didn't have great ethnic splits or anything like that. Mm. So they were perfect. And also the American public was willing to underwrite mm. a mm. vast democracy building project mm. in those mm. countries mm. because they had just fought a war over it, mm. essentially, a, you know, a mass conscription war. Yeah. But yeah. those things don't they just do not obtain. And a further thing that doesn't obtain, which world. is that even though Russia is weak in many ways, it's expanding in parts of Africa. Or at least proxies of it, or expressions of it, the Wagner Group are expanding into Mali, where the French were. Yes. So actually, in some parts of the world, it's still an expanding presence. Yes, I'd like to bring up something, John, that you had written in the New Statesman. I think that this this indicting Putin as a war criminal in the Hague is a very interesting event because, as you put it, it sort of presupposes that there will be a post-Putin Russia and it mm. will be benign. But that's a lot to assume. It is. Obviously, there will someday be a post-Putin Russia, maybe sooner rather than later, we don't know. But the idea that Russia will somehow be more benign after mm. Putin or mm. easier to deal with, that's a possibility, a strong possibility, but it may not be a probability. No, no I don't think it is. It's, we're in a realm which is so uncertain that probabilities even don't apply. It's real uncertainty. But I see no reason to suppose that Russia might not either shrink into a radical nationalist Russia led by someone perhaps even less rational and even more dangerous than Putin has proved to be, or break up altogether, like it did in when the Tsarist Empire collapsed as a result partly of the First World War, when at one point I think there were 13 separate state-like entities in Russia and somewhere around 10 or 12 million people died in the following, in the wars, plague, famines, and so on and so forth. So the assumption that he can be tried with a kind of a benign Russia in the background, which approves of this trial and doesn't see it as yet another humiliation or another defeat, is a big assumption. Yeah. I think one thing we should keep our eye on is I said earlier that I think the Ukrainians are going to do very well on the battlefield over the next few weeks and months. If they're able to seriously, fundamentally threaten Crimea, Absolutely. I think Putin could be in a lot of trouble because Crimea is not Eastern Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Crimea has associations with Catherine the Great. It goes back to Russian historical romanticism. Mm -hmm. If Putin is seen to be the cause of potentially losing Crimea, mm -hmm. that could cause a real a real power struggle of some I mean, even, sort. Even Gorbachev, to my knowledge, even Gorbachev, and until recently, even Navalny, did not argue for giving back Crimea to Ukraine. They see that as Solzhenitsyn, as huge numbers of Russian intellectuals and thinkers have seen it, as actually a, a foundational part in geopolitical terms, the port and so on, but as part of as part of Russia. So I think if really Crimea looks seriously in question, then the balloon goes up. That's the risk. 
not only is Putin at risk, if Putin's at risk, then will he take it lying down or will he throw the dice again? We don't know, do we? No, we don't know. I think one thing we should say, because the title of this program is The Age of Tragedy or some yes. sort, is what we mean by tragedy. Yes. And by tragedy doesn't mean that we're pessimists. What means that because, because disappointment and failure is the normal rule of life in any mm. case. That's not what the Greeks meant by tragedy. Mm. What the Greeks really meant was a world of tough choices. Yeah. Where, where the world is inherently imperfect, yet yeah. at the same time, it is beautiful. And tragedy means making decisions between two goods. You can only choose one good over another good, but whatever you choose will cause suffering in her. Mm. And therefore, an age of tragedy just means an age where things will not be perfect, where we can't always get what we want all the time, mm. that, that we'll have to choose between giving in to authoritarianism and, mm. or, and demanding perfect democratic outcomes. Because we shouldn't give in to authoritarianism, but at the same time, we're not going to be able to demand, in every case, perfect democratic outcomes. I agree with that wholly, and I think that's something that we could talk a little more about. I'd put it perhaps very similarly to the way you put it, Robert, but maybe slightly even more strongly. I would say when we talk of tragedy in geopolitics or elsewhere, we're not just talking about imperfectibility. We're not just talking about the intermittent or reversible character of progress. We're not just talking about why that history hasn't ended. If we go back to the Greeks and, and later to, to Shakespeare and other writers of tragic drama, what we're talking about is that there are recurrent situations in the human world in which whatever is chosen involves irreparable loss. Yeah. And may, the, those choices may be noble, they may be heroic, sometimes often are. Uh, they may activate the most valuable and admirable features of human beings, of human agency, but they involve irreparable loss. So the idea that we would eventually get to some point in world politics or human society in which there was no tragedy would mean that these conflicting values would somehow all be harmonized. But that's not the way the human world is, and it's certainly not the way geopolitics is. Uh, but I think that's entirely consistent with what you've said, because what it means is we can't say we won't support that because it doesn't involve a perfectly democratic outcome. We won't support that because it involves legitimating some kind of injustice. And that's why I think I'm rather maybe slightly more skeptical than you are of a legalistic model of international relations. Because if we say this regime or this leader has committed crimes, can't ever do a deal with him, he's got to go to, the, to a court. I think that actually makes conflict potentially more devastating than it could otherwise be. No, I agree with you. And in fact, indicting heads of state as war criminals has problems because mm. it means you cannot make a deal with them. Yes. And often in order to end a conflict in a mm. country, yeah. you have to you have to give the losing side some assurance that it mm. won't be prosecuted. That if they're gonna if they're gonna lose every, if they're gonna lose everything. Yeah, yeah, that why, they can just why, why, go away why, quietly. Yeah, yeah. But if they're going to lose everything, not only their power and their privileges, but their reputation and their freedom and everything, what incentive do they have to do any deal? Yeah, no, I think it was Edith Hamilton 
the mm. great American classicist of the early mid 20th century, who wrote that not to think tragically is to rob life of its significance. So tragic thinking is inherent in any serious mm. statesmanship. Mm. And we saw that put to good use in some of three of my favorite statesmen mm. in the second half mm. of the 20th century, George Schultz, James Baker and Henry Kissinger, mm, who mm. all had a very tragic worldview, but all did all did a lot of good. Schultz stood up for human rights in Africa at the same time he was enabling the Helsinki mm. process in in Central Eastern Europe. Baker was integral to the success of the first Gulf War. And Kissinger, of course, by moving over to China in order to balance against Russia and then nevertheless having detente with Russia, indicates that it's not so much a pessimistic worldview. It's just a worldview that realizes that things are not going to be perfect. And sometimes you have to select the lesser evil. Yeah. And that conflict between goods and lesser evils or goods and goods is permanent. I guess that's what, I mean, that's not that any particular conflict is permanent, but that situation we're in is a, a permanent situation. It would exist, Robert, I think, even if there was, I'm not sure it would be desirable, a world government, because if there was a world government somewhere, it would have to decide what to do with rebels. It would have yeah. to decide if one country in that had hitherto been independent rebelled against the world government. It would be like a gigantic Roman Empire. What would they do? They would have to suppress them or do deals with them. They'd have to do something to preserve the order. Yes. In any case, we should never have a world government because a world government, by definition, would be very oppressive. Absolutely. There would be an assumption that everyone agrees on the basic modes of order and politics, etc., which, of course, people never will. It's not will. the case. It's not the yeah, case. Yeah, it's not the case. The so world government, by definition, has to be oppressive. Yes. But what we can move towards is maybe more of a form of world governance with major powers, but we're not there yet. We have an antiquated UN where countries like India are not represented, but a country like France is on the Security Council, so that we don't have the procedures in place to make a difference as much as I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is that it's all about interest and power. The United States is the biggest military power in the world. It has a self-interest in seeing Ukraine win, but not win overwhelmingly, totally, so as to bring down Putin and Russia, but to win, essentially, to show that, to show that invasions of that sort will fail. And, I, and as I said earlier, I think the Biden administration, in its own non-intellectual way, has been thinking been thinking, you know, tragically about it in a constructive manner. In other words, they want Ukraine to win, but they're afraid of a catastrophic victory that would lead to chaos or something unpredictable mm. in Moscow. I think one factor which will play very importantly in that, and it looks as if it might even be being considered now, is that the impact of the Ukraine war so far has been millions of refugees. I don't know, three to five million or something going to different countries, to Poland and elsewhere. The impact of a Russian collapse could be twice that many. And that surely, it's a part of what you were talking about earlier. If, if there was a catastrophic victory, a victory which 
crippled the Russian state, which may not be that strong anyway at this time. And there was a rerun of what happened in 1919 and multiple civil wars and so on and conflicts between mercenary groups. I read somewhere, by the way, that some people think that there might be up to 30 semi-private mercenary groups in Russia at the moment, not just the Wagner one, but others smaller. Imagine the lid coming off that and what that would mean. It would mean, among other things, an aspect of interconnectedness, which is great, much greater now than it was in the 19th century or the early 20th century. Colossal waves of migration into Europe and elsewhere. And that, surely, that prospect is one of the things that is possibly even weighing in the mind, weighing in the mind of Poland and possibly even the United States and France and others that are wary of a catastrophic victory. Yes, indeed. Always remember that Russia is much more weakly institutionalized than China. Were Xi Jinping to get sick tomorrow or be incapacitated, yes. the Chinese have a bureaucratic mechanism that's mm -hmm. fairly transparent in order to select a new leader. Now, that could lead to some turmoil. It could lead to radical shift in policy eventually. But there is a bureaucratic mm -hmm. mechanism in place to replace the leader in China to a degree that does not exist in right. Russia. Russia, it's a black box as to what, you know, as to what can happen were Putin to be seriously threatened. Mm -hmm. And remember, we, we are talking about a country with tremendous amounts of both strategic and tactical nuclear weapons. Yes. And I think that's a very important also a difference between the Cold War, because however hard it was to read Soviet intentions, these were large groups of old men in suits with names and histories that were widely known, meeting in rooms and coming to decisions. That's all gone because the Communist Party's gone. The Communist Party's still there in China. It's probably never been as important as it is now as a disciplinary mechanism. What is it, 95 million members, something like that? Absolutely yeah. enormous. In Russia, there's Putin, shadowy, semi-criminal, semi-privatized groups, and otherwise, as you say, a black box. So we just don't know. And one of the reasons we may not know about the inner working is that a lot of the interstices, a lot of the layers don't exist anymore. There are large vacuums, voids that can be suddenly killed. Remember the speculation in the West as to who, who assassinates whom? People are assassinated in the shadow of the Kremlin. Was it Putin? Or was it someone else? Was it the Chechens? Well, no one knows. And I think that's a, a situation which very much supports your analysis, which is that the levels of state capacity in Russia are much lower. It may be highly coercive. They may be adopting a kind of semi-Stalinoid attitude to, defend, to dissent. But there's nothing like the depth of state capacity that exists in China. Yes. And keep in mind, during the Cold War, there's nobody, not Brezhnev, not Kosygin, not Andropov, nobody had as much power as Putin has now. Putin has more power now than any Russian leader since Stalin. Mm. And remember, not only was the, was the Politburo, the old Soviet Politburo, a somewhat collegial system, but it was also manned by people, by men who had survived the St Stalin and his yes. various purges. Yes. So they knew that it was very good not to have a strong opinion on anything. 
they were inherently cautious because they were the survivors of the purges. There was caution built into the system, just as there was caution built into the Chinese system up until Xi Jinping took power about a decade ago. But now we have two systems in Russia and in China where there's much, much less caution. In different ways. Yeah, in very different ways. Yeah. I remember reading a speech by Putin, which he said, this was before the, he invaded Ukraine. He said, my system works better because there's no communist party still here. It just meant I'm more autocratic. And yet, Robert, one of the, another of the historical cliches that I think should be questioned is people t- talk of him as a new czar. And yet it seems to me the czars, even at their worst, and they were terrible at their worst, had more until the First World War, had more legitimacy than Putin has now, because he's extremely precarious. He really is like a gangster. He really is like a mafia gangster surrounded by other potential mafia. The Tsars weren't like that. It wasn't like that. However horrible, however terrible, ghastly things, it wasn't like that at all. Yes. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Hmm. in his long series, The Red Wheel, that's about half a dozen books, each of them doorstoppers, essentially. One of his points is that the real tragedy of the Russian Revolution was the downfall of the Tsar. Because the Tsar, as awful as he was and as stupid as Nicholas II was, was nevertheless the only point, concision point of order in the system. And if the Tsar went, then there was anarchy or very weak governance from which the Bolsheviks could stage a coup and go on to kill Mm. tens of millions of people. So had the Tsar not been overthrown, this is a what if. Mm. uh, Russia today would have evolved through the 20th century as a weaker, more corrupt form of an Eastern European state, but it would not have become the awful monster, murdering, mm-hmm. genocidal monster that it did. Great. The other, let me ask you a, a related question. Do you talked earlier on, Robert, about American focus being necessarily on the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific, more than on Europe. They have an interest in Europe and they want to see a non-catastrophic Ukrainian victory if possible. But, but do you can you envisage a situation in which America backs off from defending Taiwan and allows it to be absorbed, not necessarily by an invasion? That might not be the only way. Or are there, I'm just thinking not of predictions, but of potentially realistic scenarios, let's call them, in which America, because of the deep economic interests that they have in common, Lots of American industry, Tesla, iPhones, God knows what, have been offshored into China. There's a lot of American capital there. Is there a way that they could, is there a possibility that they could back off? Or will they be too afraid of Chinese domination of the sea lanes, of these old geopolitical conundrums, as it were, coming back again? Yeah, see, the problem with compromising with China on democracy in Taiwan is that it's not just about democracy in Taiwan, where the American position in Taiwan seen to be weakened or appease or appeasement oriented in even the slightest way, that would terrify states from Japan in the north to Australia in the south, because they're in the Pacific, where China is the geographical economic organizing principle of. And 
And if they saw that America somewhat lacked resolve, mm. they would have no choice but to make begin to be Finlandized and make side deals with China. So if it was only about what system of government Taiwan had, there's a possibility you could come to some sort of compromise. But it's about a lot more than that. It's mm. about the South China Sea, the East mm. China Sea, etc., mm. where Taiwan is like the Berlin during the mm. Cold War, mm. in other words. It's hard, but yet, you know, it is possible over time that the Chinese will hedge a bit, mm. that they can say, yes, we're still determined to incorporate Taiwan as the last vestige of our humiliation from the 19th mm. century, as we incorporated Macau and Hong Kong, etc. Mm. But we're not but there may be means other than military in order yes. to do and that would lead to a series of negotiations that would that would ameliorate the problem. Remember, Nixon and Kissinger and Mao came up with one China, mm. but nobody takes any military mm. steps to change the status quo. Mm. That was a neat contradictory formula that lasted 50 years. It's certainly within reason that another formula, you know, could come into being that could take us take us further along without some catastrophic military event in the Pacific. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay. We'd love to hear your feedback on what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencequared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencequared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.